Hello, and welcome to the Hunting Science Podcast, where we talk about the science of hunting. I'm your host, Mark Lindbergh. Our goal for this podcast is to educate listeners about the how and why things work the way they do in hunting in the outdoor world. So today I'm fortunate to have with me Dr. Robert Coker, Trey Coker, known to us, um, and Larry Bartlett, who are going to talk to us about a topic that will be of interest to a number of hunters. I'm trying to think of a title for today's topic. What is it? The preparation or studies of and preparation for backcountry hunts. Would that be a fair one, you guys? Yeah. Something of that nature. Um, After we let them introduce themselves and tell us about their hunting and scientific resumes, we're going to get into their studies of hunters that participated in some pretty extreme hunts. And from those studies, we're going to talk about what they learned and how hunters can apply that knowledge to their hunts in the future. And um, with that, I'm going to let you guys introduce yourself. And again, if you just tell us about your hunting background, it's the Hunting Science Podcast. Yeah, I'm Larry Bartlett. I'm a Fairbanks resident who's written a couple of how-to hunting books on float hunting and caribou hunting in Alaska specifically. Um, I started Pristine Ventures in 1998, so I've been self-employed, basically making a living in the hunting industry for 22 years. Wow. And um, the longer I do it, the more questions I started to have about my body, and that uh, kind of led me down the road that, uh, that we're going to be talking about today. How old are you, Larry, would you tell us? I am 48 years old. Oh, okay. I, I wrote that first book when I was 28 years old, so wow, been at it for a while. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. Trey? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Mark, for having us uh, uh, as guests on this podcast. We appreciate that. Um, yeah, my background is I grew up in northern Georgia, started uh, backpacking in the north Georgia mountains for deer and uh, bear and wild hogs and those types of things. Um, then ended up getting my PhD in exercise science and did a couple of postdoc uh, fellowships. Uh, spent over a decade at the medical school in Arkansas, uh, mainly focused on uh, prevention and treatment of metabolic disease, in particular in older individuals. I'm still interested in that, but after getting or arriving in Alaska, I thought, well, this is a wonderful opportunity to start to study some of the things I've always been interested in, uh, like you know what happens to your body when you're on a 14-day wilderness excursion, uh, whether it's hunting or not. Uh, but um, some of the things that may be taking place, we just really didn't completely understand, uh, and we wanted to try to get at some of that information. Cool. Yeah, Trey and I are colleagues here at the uh, Institute of Arctic Biology, and I've often, I very much have admired his work because it's such an applied. Um, set of science that uh, really is useful. Um, well, science is useful. I, sh- I shouldn't have said it that way, but it traces very applied work that uh, many people can uh, use in their everyday life. In fact, my wife and I talked to Trey about exercise as we age. We're older than Larry and Trey. Um, sorry, <laughs> we are for sure. And I'm very intrigued, certainly, at how my aging process is affecting me physically, not only for hunting, but for exercise and life in general. So I'm really anxious to hear what these guys have learned and what they have to say. Before we dive into your motivations for these studies that you did of hunters, why don't you just 
tell us a little more specifically about your hunting. And I'm just curious what's your favorite form of hunting. I, most people don't like this question because they say, geez, I like all kinds of hunting, but just to characterize you a little bit more. Yeah. So this is Larry speaking. Um, they, the one thing, the one species that I prefer to hunt today that I'm most curious about is moose. And I think that's because you engage them vocally and you sort of get a sense of that animal's personality um, one-on-one more often than not. And with caribou, it's more of a, you know, a target shoot. You know, you try to get close enough and if you're lucky with a bow, maybe, but you're not bonding vocally with it. So it's always felt different to me. But uh, moose is by far my favorite, but my favorite to eat is blacktail and muskox. And uh, I can't, uh, I wish I hunted both more often. Muskox, I've not had it. Is it? uh, It's incredible. Sweet, like blacktail? It just, it comes with its own fat. You know, it's just a really juicy meat and I've never had a bad bite. It's incredible. Huh, neat. Yeah. Yeah, and by the way, just to remind you, episode nine is, a podcast on moose hunting, if you're interested. Tony Hollis provided us with a lot of insights about the science behind moose hunting. So have a listen if you haven't done that yet. Trey, I know you have waterfowl hunting roots, but I think you've uh, your desires or your interests have expanded since you came to Alaska. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, Mark and I know each other as, as co-faculty members here in the Institute of Arctic Biology and Department of Biology and Wildlife, um, and with that, we've learned that we both really enjoy waterfowl hunting. Um, but as he mentioned, once you get up here, it's kind of a potpourri of different opportunities when it comes to hunting. And I have to say, I, I don't necessarily, or it'd be really difficult for me to pinpoint an actual favorite. Um, I consider that to be a blessing and not a curse. Uh, in fact, just last week, I was down in Arizona doing some upland game hunting, which I never really dipped my toe into that uh, uh, body of water, but I can I can already tell you it's pretty infectious to watch a dog work in, in, in that environment. And, you know, so I, I enjoy a lot of different uh, permutations of hunting. Yeah, no, definitely. No real favorite. Yeah, upland hunting still remains my favorite is... You, you may know, and I love working dogs. That's the thing, and I get some of that in waterfowl, but certainly get out for caribou and moose, too. So maybe sheep with my son this year, trying to get him sheep hunting for the first time. So, all right, with that background, um, these Larry and Trey have done some studies of hunters, and I just wanted uh, them to walk through the history of that work, notably what motivated them to start thinking about this and and then get into some details of what studies you did. Um, I know they have some publications out and some videos out, and we're going to make those available as additional resources that um, on the podcast website that they'll reference throughout this. But um, I don't I don't know if one of you wants to yeah, talk take, about the history here. I'll take a crack at, at where I came into the, <clears throat> to the equation. Uh, Trey and I have been friends for many years. I don't even know how many years, but certainly prior to this study, uh, many years. And um, one of the interesting constituents of my logistics service as hunt planner, we're always concerned or I'm always focused on the weight of my gear and how much load I have to take to the field and deal with for two weeks at a time. And specifically, I've always been concerned with the weight of my food, like how much food do I really need 
And some trips I'm super hungry and I overeat and I don't lose much weight. Some trips I go in too light and I'm starving and I lose too much weight. Uh, so there's always been this really unknown. Uh, my background is in nursing, so I have a good, a good um, sense about me in terms of physiology, you know, the skeletal system, what, what makes muscles grow and things like that. But you never really know what's happening with your blood chemistry and things like that that may be causing uh, your response to having too little food. Um, so that's always interested me, but I've never had any answers. And uh, several years ago, I went to Trey, and we were having a similar discussion. And I mentioned to him my frustrations wanting to uh, reduce my food kit, but really not having the science to tell me how light I can go without losing way too much weight or even lean mass um, and stay strong in the field. So he was like, I think I can actually help you learn some of that. And that's kind of where you come in, Trey. Yeah, so... Um, uh those initial discussions really revolved around one thing in particular, and that is how many calories are you actually using in the field? And, you know, this it'd be hard these days not to find somebody that hasn't experimented with a Fitbit or some kind of what we call wearable biometric uh, device. But as, as valuable as those things might be, it, it's, it's kind of like a really subjective radar gun, if you will, and tracking how many calories or how much energy is actually being utilized through the day. And so, you know, in, in our uh, group of, of scientists here in the Institute of Arctic Biology, we use something called stable isotopes all the time, a variety of different ways to basically trace certain things. And one of the things that there's a methodology without going into the, you know, going in the rabbit hole of the details that allows us to very precisely measure energy expenditure over the course of a seven to 14 day hunt, uh, as, as I mentioned, with a, really a great deal of accuracy. And so I had some experience with this and then I had some collaborators both in Wisconsin and Montana that were uh, willing to help out and willing to get involved and, and become engaged. And then I also had uh, some background with some of the weight loss studies that I've done over the past, uh, now going on two decades, with figuring out what people are actually eating and ways to ways to to monitor that very uh, in a very accurate way, and so that was the first thing. And as I mentioned with Larry in our initial discussions, you always start start with the the prime mover or the the big things, the the, the largest variables that you expect to, for the backcountry hunting adventure to have an impact on. And at the same time, you know, Mark, you I appreciate your your kind comments about. Uh, my intention to translate uh, science to the, to the community. Almost everybody understands uh, the currency of calories. Uh, everybody reads food labels. Everybody kind of talks about that to some extent. But um, precise information might not necessarily be available or as available as we'd like when it comes to uh, finding out what's going on during a backcountry hunt. So that was the first task is to try to determine, you know, how many calories you're burning, how many calories you're eating, is there a caloric deficiency, and if so, what are the consequences, if any, of that caloric deficiency? Okay. Exactly. So how'd you do this then? You were a guinea pig, it sounds like, Larry. Yeah, I was, uh, I think I was the first guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> There's been dozens since. And you had names for these, hunt tests, right? Is that... Um, 
Uh, yeah, Hunt Study 1, 2, 3, which is 2017, 18, and 19. Okay. So each fall we've recruited, uh, not to interrupt you, Larry, no, but you right each, each fall we've recruited uh, moose hunters and sheep hunters for this study, so they're kind of combined. But the vast majority of it, vast majority of the uh, the hunters have actually been participating in uh, float, what Larry calls float dragging Alaska. Uh, so okay. <laughs> you might also call that drag floating Alaska, depending on uh, the the river level or water level at that particular year. Yeah, well, there one one note on that before I forget it. It's fairly critical, but we never speak into it. Is the uh, one thing to theorize a hunt study as complex as this one to pull off. Um, another thing to, to execute it with unknown variables like random hunter participants, fitness, uh, personal life schedule, none of that would have been um, achievable had we not gone through basically my resource of hunt planning. We basically hand-selected our first set of uh, participants in terms of their logistical barriers that we help overcome with, you know, very sound logistics in and out. Each participant that were being studied against were on the same route, drinking the same river water. You know, we, we really tightened up our, our, our study sample and the, the methodology by being able to control the location. And we put those participants in such remote locations that they had no other human contact. So there's no other influence of someone dropping in and sharing a meal, for example, and sharing, you know, an extra snicker bar or a bottle of scotch. What they took into the field and what they exited with, there's a plus or minus balance of that food kit, and that's how we were able to, to really tighten up the control measures and, and produce some really fantastic results that haven't been contaminated by, oh, did he take, you know, three extra pounds of wine or, you know, we really knew what everyone had at all times because we controlled the logistics. Well, that that's really neat. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. yeah. Why'd you point at me when you said scotch, extra scotch? <laughs> <laughs> so what part do you want to describe of that then, how you did it? I, I found the videos of that pretty fascinating. I think the listeners would too. Maybe we, well, we will provide some of those videos, so maybe just hit yeah. the cliff notes of how you studied these hunters. Well, uh, you know, I appreciate Larry going into a little bit more detail about how we were able to coordinate the logistics because, you know, sometimes you do these studies and it just becomes your normal mode of operation and you almost take it for granted. But um, it's very important to articulate that it was, uh, there was uh, several different vital components. One, that we had the infrastructure here at UAF to be able to, to bring people into a central site prior to the hunt and immediately after the hunt. Um, all of the transportation was based in and out of Fairbanks. So as soon as they come off the plane, because all, all these were remote hunts, none mm -hmm. of this was off the road system. So as soon as they're coming off the plane from wherever they arrive outside the state of Alaska, or if they're from Alaska, once they get to Fairbanks right before the hunt, we go through all the testing procedures. And then immediately after they get back into town, we have direct access to them, you know, generally within a 24-hour period. And we're able to capture all that information without, as Larry mentioned, without any contamination in the field and with minimal contamination from coming back into the urban, if you want to call Fairbanks urban, 
uh, catch urban, them before they binge. Eat yeah, and urban environment. Because as as any any of us know, if mm-hmm. you've been on a backcountry hunt and you're coming out of the field and you're you're really really hungry and nothing sounds better than a cheeseburger and fries, and so we're trying to get them immediately after uh, they've been through that 14 day, 12 day hunt or whatever uh, is is vital to to capturing the the, the most uh, accurate data or accurate. Uh, piece of data so that's that's really that's a vital component of the infrastructure here the larry's ability to uh, provide the hunt planner uh, and and the inherent logistics that come with that and then i think that quite frankly just the communication between larry and i about what i'm able to do to maximize the the quality of the data and what he's able to do to to make sure to, that we that he's meeting that same goal. I think working, I mean, you hear that a lot. Oh, we work together great. Well, it's not only important, it's absolutely vital for this particular project. Oh, that's that level of control that you don't get in with free-ranging animals, hunters yeah. in this case, very often, right? I mean, it, exactly. it, it's that's important for the quality of the work, and uh, your conclusions are pretty robust as a result, I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. And uh, the other thing to kind of extend beyond that point is it's it's virtually impossible to recapitulate that in a laboratory setting. Even if I had these people, uh, you know, contained or self-contained in a building and trying to exercise in the same amount that they're exercising in the field, uh, I've yet to see a float-dragging ergometer, for one thing. Um, you can't... You can't um, uh, you can't mimic the kind of environment. I mean, I guess you could try, but it'd be incredibly difficult to try to minim uh, to, to rec- uh, what's the word for it? It'd be incredibly difficult to try to um, uh, recapitulate those same environmental conditions in the lab. In the lab. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so you're 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 really taking the 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 true essence of the of of the backcountry hunt in its purest form and studying it in the field instead of in a laboratory setting. Um, it's difficult to, to do these kinds of field studies. Um, and, and you know, if somebody's in New York City and wanting to do a backcountry hunting study, you could argue it's virtually impossible unless, unless you have all these uh, inherent variables pulled together or, or strengths pulled together. So we asked two questions of the health study. What is the total calorie expenditure for hunting moose and caribou, and what are the metabolic benefits of backcountry hunting? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the initial study was really designed to, as Larry mentioned, to, to determine uh, the caloric expenditure, caloric intake, whether or not there was caloric, negative caloric or caloric or positive caloric balance. We didn't. It's also important to mention that we didn't try to to manipulate those parameters whatsoever. We just let people do what they were naturally inclined to do. And so we weren't saying, okay, you know, Larry, you can only eat such, you know, this amount of whatever. We let Larry and whoever else eat whatever they wanted to eat. And we also let them be as active or least active as they wanted to be. And so from that, we were able to, like I say, truly capture what was going on and then the other, the other side of the coin, a really important side, and you kind of touched on it, Mark, is um, what, if any, health benefits exist from this type of thing. And that goes back, you know, I've shared a picture with Larry this, 
I think I took like, or somebody took a me in 92 on a back 1992, um, on a backcountry uh, hunt in Appalachian Mountains. And I remember thinking at that time, this is probably the best thing I could do for myself physically. There's no exercise that would ever be able to, to be more beneficial to me from a metabolic standpoint. I already knew that that long ago, but I didn't know exactly what was taking place. And so when you ask the question, what types of health benefits, we were really interested in the lipids change, the serum lipids change, cholesterol, triglycerides, LDL cholesterol. Uh, do we reduce the amount of fat in our liver, which is really a surrogate marker for potential risk, high risk of metabolic disease. So um, two things, caloric balance, metabolic benefits, and then the kind of the underpinnings of what metabolic benefits might mean. Yeah, I, I, it's really intriguing. I don't think people who haven't done these kind of backcountry hunts appreciate what you're going through on it for day after day. And it's, you know, it's... I. I'm listening to you and thinking about my marathon running days and how, you know, I'm going to run this event and I could prepare for that whatever time it's going to take me to do that, three hours in, in terms of my energy intake and expenditure. And at the end of that marathon, I'm going to go to a hotel room if I'm traveling and eat a big meal and, yeah. and get warm again. And if I was cold, um, get out of the rain maybe. And I just think of backcountry hunts is not just what you did that day, but that night you're setting up a tent, you're trying to keep warm, you may have filled your boots that day, you might have to put on, you know, there's just this whole... Yeah, and rationing your food sources. Yeah, exactly. And there's this whole dimension of uncertainty that you face, too, that could really affect the results. Um, if you shoot an animal, of course, how far was the moose from the river? How mm -hmm. far do I have to pack that day? And yeah. uh, that's fascinating. I mean, I could see how difficult that is to pull off um and it sounds like you were successful that's that's commendable i mean that's amazing i'm just curious what what samples did you have to take i saw some of yeah. this in the video but so the um right is it okay to talk about the yeah. different tests that we Very did nice, so yeah. the the first prior to going on the hunt uh trey brought me into the lab and we did Obviously, we had to do blood work for the, the serum, lipids, et cetera, that we talked about, the cholesterol, lipids. Um, but the other factors that we studied before we got, went to the field were the MRI put us through um, scans of our liver and scans of our thigh, and each one are used for something different. They were looking at uh, any changes with the liver, specifically the intrahepatic fat, and we're also looking at bone density and muscle density to test lean muscle mass loss, if any. We had markers before and after the hunt. So we use the MRI and then the DEXA scan to give us an accurate idea of body mass index, total body composition. Um, what else? What am I missing? Oh, the VO2 max. Mm -hmm. That's uh, to basically test your um, pulmonary output. It's basically testing your cardiovascular shape, how much you can push yourself before and after the hunt. So that, um, and then the last thing, once we uh, began the hunt, as we started a protocol of doubly labeled water, which is a stable isotope solution that Trey can speak into, but that, that solution, taking urine samples frequently in the field, 
gave us an idea of total energy expenditure from day one to day 12 and down to the calorie. So it was very accurate. Yeah, so we kind of touched on uh, that a little bit uh, when I mentioned isotopic techniques. This doubly labeled water is just that. It's an isotopic technique. And so uh, the people drink the isotope, and this is not something that's radioactive. It's going to make you pee green or your eyes turn red or whatever. Um, but it's something that we can label both the hydrogen in the water and also the oxygen. And the hydrogen comes off at a pretty constant level in the urine, and we can analyze that uh, that level uh, from the urine samples. Um, and then we use that kind of as a, as a baseline. Uh, and then uh, based on the amount of energy expenditure, the, the oxygen label comes off at a greater or at a greater or lesser degree. And so by comparing kind of the oxygen label to the, to the hydrogen label, we can determine energy expenditure. That's the basis of that method. And so one of the real advantages of that method, unlike a Fitbit, is it takes into account uh, load carriage, which can, which can be load carriage. And some of the wearable biometrics can um, do some corrections for the angle of movement, like if you're going uphill or downhill or whatever. But this doubly labeled water technique captures all of that. It doesn't miss anything. It's kind of like a, it, it collects all of the energy expenditure. Nothing is, is missed. And so it's not only a, an accurate representation, but it doesn't overestimate, it doesn't underestimate, it gives you a true uh, and valid reading in terms of energy expenditure. And Larry did a good job of describing kind of how, you know, how that, uh, what, what, what goes on in terms of what the participant is being asked to do. So this is once daily urine samples or? Once, da- once daily, um, but every other, every third day is sufficient. Oh, really? So wow. typically what we would do is ask the individuals to collect it at least every other day. And then basically using this method, it's all based on the slope of the curve. And so as long as you get a sufficient, um, you could even get by with maybe three or four samples for the whole hunt. But we try to, as you might well appreciate, we try to take more samples instead of less. Yep. Uh, but at the same time, we're always balancing like the need to get the samples with the burden that we're placing on the participants. Um, and, you know, we're all sitting here. We've been on these kinds of backcountry hunts. Typically, the last thing you think about the first thing in the morning is I've got to pee in this little tube and it's freezing rain outside. And where are my, you know, where are my boots? I mean, it's just not something that comes to the forefront of your mind. And even if it does, it's like, oh, crap, I got to do that, you know. Uh, so we're always trying to minimize oh, that participant. and screw on the lid tight. Yeah, and screw on the lid tight. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and make make sure it doesn't leak out all all over everywhere. But um, are these people speaking to you at the end of the hunts? Or uh, <laughs> remarkably, yes. You know, that's that's one thing that, that I have to say that you know I mean, kind of going back a little bit and a little bit off, not necessarily off the topic, but one thing I didn't know when I came to Alaska in 2013 and started doing this type of what we call clinical research, it just means human research studies, um, is whether people here would be interested in it. And we've been overwhelmed with interest. People really find this uh, fascinating and they want to know more about it. So, yeah, I mean, they might be cussing us when they're in the field, but once they get back to town, they're they're friendly again. Yeah. <laughs> and not to get into technical weeds too much, the double labeled water is interesting. My wife is a physiologist by training, and she mm-hmm. actually 
use that technique to try to get um, body composition of ducks because mm-hmm. um, you could, if I recall, it gets absorbed in the water pool and the yep. water pool in the body is related amount of fat. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's a neat technique. But the liver fat specifically, what, why that measurement specifically? I heard a story the other day about liver fat being a big indicator of health. Um, it's from a doctor who was claiming that we're all sugar addicts and and that sugar is putting on liver fat and making us that in turn has collateral effects on high blood pressure and type two diabetes and so forth. Is that um, could you in non technical terms as possible tell us why liver fat is such an important measure? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is one of the. I would I would make the assertion that this is one of the biggest health problems in the United, in the mm-hmm. United States right now, and I, I feel like one of the reasons why, or my interpretation, I should say, of one of the one of the reasons why that's the case is is pos- positive energy balance, and positive energy balance is generally a lack of sufficient activity. Uh, in the context of excess energy intake. And, you know, then there's certain little macronutrient manipulations that we've tried to do. And, you know, we've been doing in this field for two or three decades now. But just that negative energy balance, once that's presented, it typically has uh, an overwhelming positive effect on, on metabolism. And so getting back to your question, why do we measure liver fat? Well, most of us that have ever been in the outdoors have seen a beaver pond, right? And a beaver pond is a is a relatively decent analogy for what's happening in the liver. Uh, when you have positive energy balance, the liver's job, to some extent, has a lot of different jobs. But one of the jobs that it has is try to keep the level of plasma lipids or serum lipids in the circulation relatively constant. So it serves as kind of a, a collection can, if you will, for these excess lipids. And not surprisingly, in the context of positive energy balance, it accumulates lipids. And when it starts to do that or becomes a fatty liver, then the function of the liver, the the healthy functions of the liver are diminished. And it's kind of like pushing a snowball up to the top of the hill. Once Once you get the snowball up the top of the hill or once it becomes a fatty liver, then the downstream negative benefit or downstream negative impact of that just kind of tends to accumulate or try to t- tends to get worse and worse and worse. And so we wanted to see whether or not in the context of seven to 14 days, and I say mm-hmm. seven to 14, some of the people were only in the field seven, seven days, some 14 days. Um, we wanted to see if that reduced their intrahepatic lipid. It's a big problem in the United States. You know, you can look in the literature, you can type up non, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and you just get, you know, tons of hits on this uh, issue because it's a big, big health problem. And it's and, an indicator of health. Yeah, and it's an indicator of health. It's kind of like I mentioned initially. It's, it's a, uh, consistent with Larry's comment. It's a, it's a good surrogate marker for metabolic disease. And that's kind of using a positive word for a negative thing. But it's, it's an excellent way to determine if somebody's at risk for metabolic disease. Another uh, little tangent here before we get into the results, but um, I'm just curious, I, um, and you don't have to reveal names, did most of your hunters take alcohol in the field? I've, I've once had alcohol 
on a backcountry hunt and it's because I was with some youngsters who mm-hmm. brought it. I just, I'm always, I like my scotch in the mm-hmm. evening, but not on a backcountry hunt. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm trying to cut every ounce of weight, as mm-hmm. you pointed out, especially as I get older. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, do most, most of the people you studied uh, take alcohol? I would say probably about half. Really? Some, something in that range. Um, we had to uh, we had to manage our caloric intake with a field diary, and uh, for example, I had five hundred I had five hundred milliliters of red wine every night for seven days, and that required fourteen pounds of wine. Wow, box wine. Yeah, and that's just to give you five hundred milliliters every night. Wow. So you got it, Larry, quite a bit. Your typical hunter, yeah, most, yeah, taking alcohol to the field. I think I'd say majority, yeah, more than half. Hmm. That's interesting. Probably yeah. not beer very often. You would be surprised. <laughs> Some of the things that are in my rentals, my raft rentals, when they come back in the fall, surprise me. Huh? You know, it's, it really surprised me. I mean, I bet that's affecting blood liver or uh, liver fat too. Yeah, I mean, but not in that. Yeah, generally speaking, I mean, like I like I mentioned, you know, negative caloric balance if it's sufficient enough, and you're talking about getting into some of the results of the study. Yeah, um, can be extremely powerful even in the context of moderate alcohol consumption because keeping in mind that, you know, our westernized society just does not. We know this from the data we collected. Uh, just is is not commingled with a high level of physical activity, not anywhere near to what you know what we saw in these studies. Yeah. So before we dive into the results, anything else you want to hit on? Any specifics of the study process that uh, you want to share that are intriguing? Or again, like I said, we're going to share the videos so they'll get to see some of this in action. But uh, I think one one thing I'll share, if if you don't mind, sure, just real quickly, is that um, that there I'm sure there hopefully be people that uh, have participated in this type of uh, backcountry excursion and kind of know what we're talking about, but there may be as many, maybe even more, that don't really have any way to to put this in their mind or to understand, you know, the extreme nature of what of what, what we're talking about. And, you know, the videos are helpful, but much like, you know, you can watch Michael Jordan dunk a basketball, but it's a long way, a very, very long way from watching me attempt to dunk a basketball, meaning that even as many times as I might watch that video, I don't really understood or don't really understand what it took for him to do that physiologically. I mean, it's just an amazing uh, feat, and there's a lot of other examples for that. And I'm not saying that backcountry hunting is kind of the the Michael Jordan analogy, but I am saying that um, this is pretty extreme uh, level of of activity, uh, pretty extreme level of mental resilience, uh, getting up in the morning and going outside and it not being uh, compatible, you know, with the human spirit and that, you know, it's raining and you're getting wet and it's, it's cold and you're not seeing anything or you're not, you know, there's... There's a certain allure to it, but at the same time, there's a certain amount of misery that goes with it as well. Yeah, and it's it's a good preamble to the results here because I'm really intrigued. I mean, you're going to give us the physiological results, which are uh, not disputing, but there's a factor in here that I don't. I'm just curious how you took it into account, and I 
for lack of a better term, I guess call it toughness, you got into the mental aspects of this hunt. And I've interacted with a lot of hunters and most, you know, physically look in shape, but there's certainly been a, a number of them that you look at and say, this guy's really, he's going to pack that moose that far. And it's, and some of these people are just incredibly tough. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And they don't, appearance wise, you wouldn't pick them for your team if you were playing some sport, but um, boy, you get in and hunt with them and they're the ones you want to have along with you. I mean, their mental uh, toughness translates into physical toughness in ways yeah. that I don't, I don't, you can't measure that, but um, no, difficult. you can, you can witness it even yeah. in women. Like there are some women that I've hunted with that are impressively resilient and strong for their, for their lean mass. It's, your point's well made. I mean, I, I, physiological resilience, you know, and or fitness or, you know, whatever term you want to, we, we might want to use or somebody else might want to use is not unlike other items of your kit. I mean, you need good boots. You need a good dry jacket. You need a, a watertight tent. Um, can you get away with maybe not having the best tent? Absolutely. Is it going to make it more difficult on you? Absolutely. Same thing I think is true for physiological resilience. Can you get away with being uh, maybe not as in shape as the next person? Yeah, probably, as long as you don't get injured and then become a burden on that other person. That's yeah. kind of a, an issue. But then you can have the most physically fit person you could imagine, but then they get out there and they've never really been in, in that environment where the weather sucks five days in a row. And then that that they they might have the inability to maintain their mental resilience, which could be more destructive than all the other things that I just mentioned. So it's important to have all those elements of the kit uh, together in a, in a nice fashion. And some some of us have greater strengths than others, and that kind of highlights the importance of going with an individual that maybe you have a gap in your kit in this way, but they can fill that gap in in, in a cohesive manner. So. You know, all those things are important. No, that's interesting. I mean, I hire a lot of people for studies in the field, and some of those camps are out in remote settings for three months on end. And now that I've done this for some 20-plus years, I'm getting better at identifying those people that have both the physical and mental ability to, to withstand and there is a level of withstanding. I mean, some people thrive in that environment. Um, yeah. And then there's people that I've had texts that... Um, are literally notching, notching uh, lines in the wall of a, of a cabin we were staying in with the number of days they had left in the field. I mean, it's just you know they're physically perfect, they were fine, but mentally they were they were done. And, and uh, yeah, and you don't want that as a hunting partner. I mean, um, you don't no. want that person as a hunting partner. So it's interesting um, <coughs> that that um, you get better identifying the characteristics. I, I don't even know if I could list them off, but. Yeah. Um, I talk to people and it's like, no, you're not going to work out. And, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, you're going to be fine. Um, so, so drum roll, we've been getting to this. Mm -hmm. um, results, help us um, go ahead and summarize those if you would. What did you learn from these, these hunt studies? Okay, well, first thing maybe is just to kind of put it in, uh, put the results in a bit of a context. Sure. And I mentioned before that, you know, I've done a variety of different intervention type studies and, you know, people anywhere from uh, 
generally speaking, for the most part, 50 to 80 years old. Um, uh, and though most of, a lot of those intervention studies have been focused on uh, either improvements in metabolic health and or retention of skeletal muscle. And um, you know, we touched on a little bit about the skeletal muscle and maybe get to that in a moment. But in terms of metabolic benefits, generally speaking, a lot of these intervention studies were anywhere between 12 and 20 weeks or you know, in a significant amount of time where they might be exercising five days a week or you know, three to five days a week, something like that, and then you know, have some type of weight loss uh, intervention embedded into it. Uh, and so having said all that, a lot of times we'd see maybe a 5 to 10% improvement okay, in their metabolic health, and we talked about some of the parameters associated with that. Uh, we mentioned intrahepatic lipid being able to decrease intrahepatic mm-hmm. lipid. Even in that short amount of time? Yeah, and in, in this study, you know, keep that in, and it's the reason why I mentioned that comparison, and, and basically average of 10 days, something like that, we saw at, at least as much of a change in, in intrahepatic lipid and potentially even a greater change in serum lipids, uh, cholesterol and triglyceride, than we've seen in some of these longer intervention type studies. The other really important thing to mention is the individuals that were in this backcountry hunting study were in better, in better metabolic condition to start with. So, and that's really, really important because that means we had less of a signal to work with. In other words, their levels of serum lipids were not that high mm-hmm. uh, before the start of the hunt. And so if they're not that high, they don't have that much room to drop, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas in some of the intervention studies and people that were you know, very metabolically unhealthy, the serum lipids were much higher, but they didn't fall as much. And so I think there's a really good take-home message there, and that is uh, something I've told Larry that I think the constancy of movement when it comes to the human being is really important. And our lifestyles now are kind of based on we feel really good if we go for a 30-minute run. Well, this backcountry hunt per day in terms of just physical stress or the overload of that physical stress is far beyond a 30-minute bout of physical activity. Am I saying that we shouldn't do 30 minutes of activity every No, that's not. I'm just saying that this is much more powerful uh, in terms of its ability to induce uh, pretty dramatic benefits in metabolic health. And a good way to get it, huh? I mean, it's, yeah. uh, for Absolutely. many of us, that's a fun way to do it. Uh, this, uh, this isn't the exact right term, but it sounds... Um, I'm thinking like saturation therapy, like you're going to go, you're going to go detox, you're going to go to a clinic. Immersion therapy. Yeah, Yeah. something like that. It's this intense period of time where you, you focus on improving your health, if, if you will. I mean, your focus is on hunting, but. Well, that's, um, what's so cool is you don't have to focus on improving your health on a hunt. You resolve from that hunt healthier. There's nothing you can do about it from your transition from point A to point B it's going to happen in seven to ten days. You have virtually no choice in the matter. Right. That's what's so cool about the science is, it's you can every one of us are showing the exact same um, improvements. It's not just a one-off. Exciting. Well, for Larry, I mean, this is there's not to brag on him, but Larry has a, a, a pretty solid reputation in his field um, and with his business and what have you. 
and so solid that any of the the hunt planners that he might you know provide to one of his customers he could go on and probably function as high or probably even higher than the other individuals or the individuals that might be interested in going on a hunt and he's almost 50 years old if you compare him to the average 48 year old in you know in the american population much much more uh, physically resilient and and i would argue that it's i mean i know that he does maybe four or five of these types of hunts or immersions every year and then he's also doing training you know during the rest of the year but um these kind of episodic really really powerful bouts of activity uh can't be anything more than beneficial to him yeah so this is a little bit of a tangent i guess but that you hit on a term that really struck me is that constancy of movement i was getting a hunt together with my son this year a blacktail hunt and um and he's 12 and he's very capable for a 12 year old but i i don't know if intimidated was the right word but i was a little stressed about the hunt it was we were getting boated into this area and we we're going to be remote and you know setting up a tent arc oven and you know just the day-to-day of managing him and his safety and camp life and hunting life i was just i'm getting old enough that i was thinking about my ability to to do all that and i really wanted a friend to come along who did mm-hmm. which was great just to have another adult to balance that out a little bit but where i'm going with this is that you you you're i exercise regularly and you're right i we should do that but you can't i don't do you, can you exercise in a way to prepare you for constancy in motion, right? I exercise and then I go sit at my desk and work on my computer, right? And when I'm on a hunt, I'm out hiking, I might be packing something, I come back and then I gotta cook a meal and I gotta, you know. I, I, I think what has helped me in knowledge terms translate to my choices with physical activity and how resilient I am psychologically and also physically is the idea that you have 12 months to prepare for for an episode and a backcountry hunt you know, it, most of us do one epic hunt a year that's kind of the alaska thing um, if you choose a seven to ten day or 12 day uh, sheep hunt or float hunt you've got to prepare for that in, in 12 months you can't and you're right you can't in my opinion prepare for the constancy of movement and the load bearing application that's going to be forced on you in the field but what you can do is provide a muscle memory program for your muscles. Um, you're exercising regularly and you're doing push-ups and setups daily. Your core is being activated every day. Your, all of your muscles, whether you're climbing stairs instead of the, taking the elevator, uh, standing instead of setting, just preparing your body daily for an increase in activity and just being mindful to stay active, your muscles will remember that um, down to the molecular level, in my opinion. And come hunting time, you're you're already more resilient and more active and more mentally capable because you've always put in an extra flight of stairs or, a, you know, an extra 50 push-ups before you went to bed. It's like your muscles remember every day that you're back in action and they're not going to let you down. That's what's helped me over two decades to sharpen my performance in the field, knowing that every year my back hurt more, It took me two days to recover instead of one. It's like age is inevitable, but uh, loss of muscle isn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. I should be happy I live in a three-story house, I guess, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I complain yeah. about it regularly, but it's like, God. Yeah, just to just kind of back up some of the things that Larry said about muscle memory, you know, in the, in the molecular biology laboratory, uh, we talk about mechanisms that uh, prime the muscle for its response to overload, or the overload of physical activity. And actually some of the results that we just found this year for the first time to my knowledge, we were able to do a muscle biopsy procedure here at UAF in humans. And we determined precisely that, uh, and backing up what Larry's saying, you know, some of these anabolic mechanisms are literally being turned on or the pump is being primed at the molecular level in the muscle uh, to send the message, okay, you know, you need to be maintaining the contractile proteins, the mitochondrial proteins, the constructs needs to be there or need to be in place, the machinery needs to be in place when you start to do that activity. Mm -hmm. So the individual that's that's much younger, as Larry kind of mentioned, can tend to respond to that a little bit more robustly, even though they might not be training at all before they go on the hunt, just because they're younger. But once you start to reach the 40s and 50s and 60s, um, it really becomes more difficult to, to respond to that overload and more challenging. And so the influence or positive influence on uh, training on making sure those light switches can turn on when the overload is applied or when the person starts to be physically active and then effectively recover, uh, it becomes even more important. <laughs> so, you know, Larry, you know, the way he described that uh, is right on track with what's actually happening at the molecular level and at what we call the in vivo or the whole body level. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, it's really a good way to think about it. Hmm. I had a, uh, I have a sheep hunting friend that um, one of the more uh, active sheep hunters and when he was younger, he used to go on successive hunts. He would go on his own hunt and then join others and he would be out in the field for 20 plus days on sheep hunting in the mountains mm -hmm. and packing and doing all those things. And and he lived a lifestyle very much like you described, Larry, the rest of the year. And he told me, um, even when he was in his 20s, that he would put on 10 pounds of weight when he was sheep hunting. And uh, I I go on a sheep hunt for a week and I'm, I'm losing 10 pounds, right? It's just, he was in that good a shape that he was putting on muscle mass mm -hmm. while hunting, that he was, it was translating in that way for him. I just think that's an yeah. interesting side. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's, that's something that we're going to, you know, as we collect more and more participant or more data from the participants, uh, we're going to be able to start to tease apart, you know, potential differences between uh, a younger cohort, a middle-aged cohort, and an older cohort. I mean, we have a wide range of participants, I think, at this point, maybe from 28 to 65 uh, in this study, something like wow. that. And so Men we and are, women. Yeah, men and women, almost equivalent numbers now. So, um, yeah, it's it's important for people to, I mean, that that's the other, it's really important for people to know, okay, if I want to continue to pursue this kind of activity in my life, how do I do it? Yeah. And how do I do it most effectively? Yeah. The health benefits, that's, yeah, that's important. Um, but, you know, what we're finding so far, if I may, and just talking yeah. about the the energy expenditure and negative caloric balance. One of the really interesting topics to a lot of people is um, how many calories do I have to eat or how much protein do I have to eat 
to avoid muscle loss. Yeah, please go in those details. I, so what um, we talked about, sort of the year, year-long preparation, but what what should you take to the field on these hunts? Well, based on the data that we have, um, and, you know, as, as scientists, that's what we tend to lean back on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, or or uh, stand on that foundation. Um, we've determined that, for the most part, these hunters are, in our studies, are utilizing a, about 4,000 calories a day, um, and they're only eating somewhere in the neighborhood of about 2,000 calories a day. That's, you know, wow. approximately. So that's a negative caloric balance of about 2,000 calories per day. Wow. It's pretty easy to do that math. And, I mean, those are not the precise values, but the, yeah. the approximately, and that makes it a really easy take-home message for people. Utilizing about 4,000, eating about 2,000, negative caloric balance of, of, of about 2,000 per day. You so, know, when you multiply that over 10 days, you've got a really significant negative caloric balance. And so far, we have basically seen no muscle atrophy and any of our participants unless their protein intake is falling below 1.0 grams per kilogram per day and the rda recommendation recommendation is 0.8 and you know a lot of the sports nutrition literature will say that individuals that are exercising really intensely need 1.5 to 2.0 grams per day but those sports nutrition recommendations are being made on uh, uh, training plans that might be three to six months long. We're talking about something within the context of a two-week period. And so do I lose muscle? The question is, do I lose muscle on a 14-day hunt? The answer is as long as you are uh, in a, not having a negative caloric balance of more than 2,500 calories and maybe even 3,000 calories a day and keeping your protein intake, high-quality protein intake at 1.0 grams per kilogram per day, the answer is no. You don't have to worry well, about that. So just to put that core uh, use in context a little bit more, what's, this is hard to characterize. It. What's an average person use in calories per day? You're saying 4,000 average backcountry hunter per day, but... I'd say around 2,000 for you okay. know, us three guys sitting here in yeah. this, in this um, little booth. I know I maintain a, I maintain a constant weight down down within 0.5 ounces, so or 0.5, you know, half a pound virtually yearly. Wow. Um, so I know exactly what I eat every day. It's between 27 and 3,200, and that keeps me right in the ballpark. If I drink the same amount of water and stay hydrated. Um, so I'm 20, probably 25 to 27 regularly doing not just minimal living, just, you know, skiing three times a week. Yeah, I haven't thought about those numbers much. I rarely, but when it gets really cold, I hop on a machine yeah. that has the calories yeah. used, read on, it's, you know, a good good half hour, you're only burning, what, three, 400 calories? Yeah, and as, as Larry mentioned, you know, 2,700 to 3,200 you asked me the question, what's the average? You know, yeah. the, I, the answer I gave was like the average person. Yeah, the right. average person at 48 years old is not Larry Bartlett. You know, he's not only utilizing more calories, but he's also trained basically his whole life up to this point. So he's got a lot of lean tissue mass that, you know, that's facilitating more energy expenditure on a daily basis. But to put it, like you said, you know, how, how do I wrap my head around how many calories is that? What does that mean? 
Um, if an individual, let's say they need 2,000 calories a day to maintain caloric balance, and, uh, and they exercise a couple hundred calories a day, or some uh, exercise uh, amount that would be equivalent to a couple hundred calories a day, that's really not going to be enough, generally speaking, to, to cause significant weight loss. And I say that because we've actually done those studies. I'm yeah. not just you know, thinking that that might be the case. We've actually found that that is, in fact, true. And to even see really significant weight loss, it needs to be somewhere in the general population about 500 calories a day of either uh, negative caloric balance through not eating as much and or exercising more. And, you know, so the point being is here, you know, if, I, if I'm saying it takes 500 calories a day with an intervention, so-called medical type intervention, and these individuals are 2,000 calories a day, more than, you know, than they're what they need to maintain balance, then, you know, I'm basically make, making the case it takes four to five times more than what you normally see in a t- medical type intervention. Wow. So we can't go into this in this level of detail in, in this podcast, but can we point to resources that people could translate what you just said and into pack, packing lists as yeah. you develop those? Or, uh, oh, definitely. So this last year, Trey and I co-authored and Sheree even helped Sheree Coker, his wife, another Ph.D. candidate. She's uh, helped us write these articles from fall. We've got spring, summer, and fall of 2019 issues of Haunt Alaska. And so virtually he and I took the time to think of three articles that we could put together in sequential order that basically, dare I say, dumb down the science but make it a little more interesting and simplify uh, in basically layman's terms that hunters can understand freely without getting their thesaurus out. Uh, those will probably be my primary resource to point them to because, one, you, you know, I, I put a, a little hunting story along with the science so it's a little a little less boring than hearing Trey talk all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think you can find those online or just contact Hunt Alaska Magazine and, and look for those issues. But... Uh, they're still rolling about every three months. We'll get a new piece of data that we add and we talk about. That's neat. And so, it's got food choices in there, menus. Yep. But it brings you from the ground level of the science up to planning your meals and how much weight you can cut and how many calories you should eat and expect this. And we'll link those off the yeah, website, cool. the podcast website, so people can reference those. But this is great. I don't, is there other results you want to highlight or uh, – no, I got to punch Larry back for his comments. <laughs> Give me an opportunity to do that, and we'll call it good. So um, <laughs> there was a part that um, we talked about in this group that um, we, we've kind of hit on this in a couple of different ways, but I, for a while, was calling it the X factor. I mean, and maybe it's this toughness index. Oh, that, yeah, the um, grit. Yeah. How do you, is there things that are just surprising you? Is there people you looked at or even measured and said, Wow, they're just performing differently than me, and I'm, I'm perplexed by that. I mean, what's the future for this? Where do you, where well, so, do you go from here? Uh, that's an interesting question. There's a, there's a peer here at U- the university that uh, UAF that's doing that kind of work, and she's put together a, a pretty incredible uh, questionnaire to help determine levels of grit in individuals, and specifically targeting hunters. Um, Peggy Kuiper. Oh, yeah. So she's you should I'm really talk to Peggy her. Peggy on some other. You should, you should so. ask her about that project and huh. see she's uh, doing it on the 
on the slide. Well, I want to talk to her for a podcast. Maybe that'll be a topic. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, I definitely, well, I I have significant interviews with this number of interviews that I have with individuals before I select a specific location based on my knowledge of X, Y, or Z location being a certain grit factor required. Uh, some of my trips, you you have to fly into a ridge and hike several miles to the creek channel, have a plane, airdrop all your belongings and provisions out the plane. You retrieve it and float 70 miles. Others, you've just got to drag for seven miles with virtually no channel to reach a floatable channel. Uh, just these barriers that not every group is would be appropriate in that setting. And I'm off base. I've, I'm bad enough of judging that based on conversation that I probably have a 40% accuracy rate, <laughs> which is terrible. But it's their, it's their interview uh, style, and they, they talk themselves up. And without shaking someone's hand and looking, looking in their eyes and kind of feeling their bones when you shake their hand, you kind of know what a grip feels like. And that, in turn, I think is an indication of their grit. Um, that's probably the, the, you know, my, what are those, those witches sticks that you use for water? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, yeah, that's right. my indicator of someone's grit is, you know, how they present themselves when you, when you <laughs> shake their hand. Um, Alaska will humble you. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. I, I see these people that have this sort of, I call it a conqueror yeah. mentality. Warrior. They're going to come and they're going to beat Alaska. And it's yeah. like, oh man, you're going to get yourself in some. Serious yeah. trouble with that attitude. Yeah, I those mean. are the ones that you don't that you don't allow as clients for sure. Yeah, yeah. that's interesting. What about you, Trey? Is there things that science just falls short on? I mean, we do a lot. We can measure a lot of things, but is there surprises in this for you that you went, "Wow, didn't see that one coming"? Well, um, I don't. What if I was surprised uh, at anything? I was surprised at how. Uh, the, the remarkable changes in metabolic health over a very, very short period of time. We talked about that a little bit. We talked about the fact that, you know, the amount of energy expenditure derived from the activity is much greater than what we typically see in westernized society. I think there's there's a real take-home message for that and that, you know, from a, from a healthy standpoint, we need as much physical activity as we can probably fit into our life. Uh, And it doesn't have to, the body, obviously, it doesn't know the difference between walking in a gym and trying to make it down a a 100-mile river corridor. Uh, The physiological benefits are are pretty powerful as long as we put our bodies into motion. That sounds kind of corny, but it's it's really, um, there's a, a tremendous amount of legitimacy to it. Um, and it was, it was interesting to, to do these studies. Now I think the, the question, we've kind of already alluded to it to some extent, are there differences in males and females uh, as far as physiological resilience is concerned? Um, and are there differences uh, you know, across the lifespan? Some of that we know a little bit about, but not under this extreme circumstance. You know, and, and this, this paradigm actually... Uh, we've applied this kind of talk about this a little bit because I think it has some relevance. We've applied for some funding from the Department of Defense because this negative energy balance and uh, energy expenditure that we see in this backcountry hunting paradigm 
corresponds with the same type of parameters in uh, U.S. Army Ranger training. And a lot of people are aware now that females are being put into some of these uh, combat forward situations, and 99% of the data that we have on those scenarios comes from males, and probably even more than 99%. And so the ramifications of this study extend beyond just the backcountry hunting uh, or the relevance to backcountry hunting, but um, helping us understand you know, how males and females respond to this kind of, of, of overload stimulus, and then extending beyond just the physical side of it and thinking more about uh, mental resilience, uh, because that's a very, very important factor. Uh, you can take the, as I mentioned, you can take the most physically fit individual into the field, but it doesn't guarantee that they're going to be mentally tough. By no means, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I definitely have to follow up with uh, Peggy. I yep. talked to her quite a bit. Any stories you want to end with? Fun story? Larry, you got to have a hunting story to tell us that, that took you to your limits. I mean, there's a bunch of people out there going, man, this guy's probably got a story to tell. Oh, well, I guess the most, I guess the one that's most applicable is um, I was doing filming Project Blood Trail. Um, that You can find that video on my YouTube channel. But I was filming that in 2007, and I ask a, a biker buddy friend of mine from Texas to come up and give me a hand on this. I was following a group of hunters and doing observation for meat care, and I need somebody just to watch for grizzlies, you know, hold the ladder, get, get certain shots for me while I talk and whatnot. So this guy is my childhood friend, so I knew he had grit. That was the one thing he had, and that's the only thing that he brought to the table. <laughs> he came 100 pounds overweight, out, you know, just out of shape. He had His asthma had worsened. He didn't tell me any of this. So we're in, we're on the North Slope and we had 175 miles to float and we only had nine days to do it. So we had to, it was a fast clip. There wasn't a lot of waiting around and, you know, drinking scotch at the end of the day around the campfire. Day one, we we literally walked to the raft for about four miles. And that's, that's an all day affair. That's one, you know, you're basically moving a mile, half a mile an hour. Um, so it's a long day. And right at midnight, it was still mid-August, so the sun, it's a midnight, 1230 sunset. Uh, we come across come across this waterfall, which we, you know, decided to just push the canoe over. And it was a slanted waterfall, but it had a rock in the center that had, you had to stick it just right with the canoe so you could push it through. And certainly weren't going to ride it down, but didn't need to portage. So we're pushing this thing, and Tony, get, he slips and falls, and he, he hits the downstream tube. And the body weight hit the canoe, which turned it on its side, and that caused oh, the gosh. water to fill it up. Suddenly, all of our shit has floated out of the boat. It's pinned underwater. All of our survival gear, hunting gear, food, floating downstream at a fast pace. Long story short, get to the get to the shore after me swimming to try to one side to try to grab provisions. The sun's going down. The water temperature is like 40 degrees. I managed to get a willow fire going and had just enough scrounged uh, deadfall to make a 40-minute fire, a hot 40-minute fire with really tight willows. Saw this giant boulder with four to six inches of moss on it, and I took my boat paddle and made a bed of moss and laid it over the coals. And we huddled up over a tarp or under a tarp and tried to sleep. So I put him in one sleeping bag that we found so I'm spooning this big fat biker. I got my hand wrapped around one boob like I would my 
my spouse, you know, like, I'm really going for it. I'm like, I'm, I'm nearly butt naked holding this guy's fat, thinking I just need two hours of sleep to live. And suddenly, in the middle of the night, he jumps up and kicks me and throws me off out of bed. And the moss had burned, the ashes had burned through the moss and burned into the sleeping bag, melted that, caught his underwear, melted that, and his his polypropylene underwear were melting to his butt through all of those layers. And that was the end of our sleep, and that was 3.30 in the morning. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that was the start of a nine-day adventure that had, every day had something like that happen. And you recovered your gear, obviously, and yeah, lived the, to tell the next about day, it. But... absolutely, but it's one of those trips to remember. That's a good one. Trey, I don't think you could top that one. I've been kind of racking my brain as he was going through that, thinking I, I don't think I can top it, but... Um, uh, it, just on the topic of, of hunting buddies and how important it is to select them. Uh, you know, I got started on this physiolog- physiological resilience trail early on, as I mentioned, hiking in the Appalachian Mountains, and one of my late friends, Rusty, uh, when I went off to try to get some, get some stuff to get all packed up and ready to go, he took uh, some rocks and put into my backpack, and unbeknownst to me, and I'm not talking about a couple of, you know, pocket rocks. I mean, really big rocks. And so this is one of the guys that kind of mentored me and learned a lot from. And so I put my pack on and I'm going, holy crap, this thing is heavy. But of course, I'm not saying anything, you know. Pack it all out, get back to the house. And I, in that pack, I also had a complete um, quartered up uh, white-tailed deer with the rack and all that, not to mention all my, the rest of my gear. And um, he's, Rusty goes, well, Trey, your back, your backpack really looks enormous. I mean, gosh, you're carrying a lot of weight, you know. Let's pull it out. And I said, don't unpack it, you know. And he starts pulling it. What are you doing with these huge rocks in there? You know, what would you bring these along for? So, you know, some uh, the point here is, you know, select your friends wisely. But uh, Rusty knew early on that it was really important to be able to build strong legs enough to carry a heavy pack. So whether you, whether you know you're doing it or not, it still works effectively. That's a, a common prank in the in field camps is to put canned goods in people's day packs and, uh, at the start of the day and then give them a hard time about how slow they're walking that day. Um, yeah. yeah. See how much you could do. This is great. This is exactly what I was trying to accomplish with this podcast is bring hunters and science together. I, I hope hunters can appreciate that science is their friend in many of these instances. Oh, and, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, this is a perfect marriage. If you ask me, so thanks. Well, best of success. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks it's for coming work. in. I get the sense we might have you back for a more detailed one, maybe a focus on a specific topic, putting your pack together or something like that. We'll, yeah. We'll see down the road how this is received, and I'm going to guess that people are going to want something like that. So, um, okay. Awesome. We'll, we'll see. Happy to do it, Mark. You've been listening to the Hunting Science Podcast. To find show notes on this episode and to leave comments and continue the conversation, visit our website at community.uif.edu slash hunting science.